Welcome to a question and answer edition of the podcast. Thanks for tuning in and thank you for those of you who submitted questions. Uh, it's usually social media, Instagram, Instagram story that I'll put out a uh, call for the Q&A. So I appreciate those of you who submitted a question and I'm looking forward to getting them answered here. Before we get started with the show, I wanted to highlight our show's sponsors, starting with Team Builder. Team Builder is a training software portal company. If you're looking for an effective way to distribute workouts to your athletes that's been recommended by so many coaches, then check out teambuilder.com and you can get a 30-day free trial of the software by heading to T-E-A-M-B-U-I-L-D-R.com and using the code JUSTFLY. Secondly, we have Lost Empire Herbs. They are an absolute go-to of mine for all things supplementation. I love being able to harness the power of nature in my supplementation regime. I just have my Shiliagit resin today. And they have an awesome library of products to enhance your energy, vitality, and even strength through that power of nature, something you can taste, you can smell. And it's something, there's really something special about uh, herbalism or performance herbalism in a complete training regimen. To check out my own favorite herbs, you can head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly and you can use the code JOEL15 for 15% off of that order. Lastly, we have the Plyomat. Not only is it my favorite plyometric testing device as it does things like vertical jump, multi-jumps, reactive strength measures, but it also is an amazing training device because you can uh, daisy chain or link multiple mats together. And if you're doing bounding or hurdle jumps, for example, you can get reactive strength measures on those as well, which adds a new dynamic to the session. It's an awesome product. And to check that out, you can head to plyomat.net. Lastly, my online courses, Sprint Acceleration Essentials and Elastic Essentials are 20% off here for the rest of February 2024. So if you want to take advantage of that sale and join over 500 coaches who have taken my online courses, you can up your sports performance education here in the new year by heading to justflysports.com and checking out the course links. That being said, let's get to the questions for this question and answer podcast. And we'll start with one by Trevor Tiller. He asks, what are the best plyometrics to prepare for training them? Again, it's been a long layoff. So just in terms of general plyometric training, and this is likely best described in the scope of something like track and field, you're doing plyometrics to get ready for long jump or high jump or something like that. Then light or low intensity skips, gallops, uh, single leg hops, starting with the low intensity All those are a great place to start. Um, Calf jumps, just hopping in place, jumping rope. It really isn't an answer that's necessarily complicated at all. And also realize that simply doing tempo sprinting, going and sprinting 150s or 200s and uh, on short rest and doing five to eight of those, that's also plyometric training because each of those steps in a tempo sprint, a long sprint is a plyometric contact. Every step in a sport is a plyometric contact. And so plyometrics does go beyond just simply, I would say, a baseline categorization. But from a general perspective, if you're just looking to get back into that type of training, the skips, gallops, calf jumps, single leg hops are a great place to start. And then ultimately, that plyometric training uh, is going to be a gateway, I'm sure, to whatever skill you are ultimately looking at, being that dunking a basketball or just playing basketball, playing volleyball, doing track and field, uh, sprint type work, uh, whatever it is. It's important as well to look at, well, how is the skill of my sport jump going to play into it? Because it's not something where I would say it'd be an interesting situation in today's age where um, your skill is plyometrics. (laughs) Unless your sport is triple jump, then I would say yes, then perhaps your skill is truly plyometrics. 
But ultimately, if I like dunking a basketball, then getting out there and doing various low rim dunk variations and all sorts of different types of low rim dunks with spins and twists and different approaches and different lengths of jump into the hoop. Uh, just as an example, uh, that is all also plyometric, very plyometric in nature. And so that would complement that, uh, you could just say garden variety, lower level uh, type of plyometric work with the skips, gallops, and uh, calf jumps. And one last thing with the plyometrics and really getting back into anything after a layoff is a great time to work on not just the um, the sets and reps and the progression and thinking about that, but also to work on the ease of the work, the quality of the work, your connection with the work itself. And so for plyometrics, what that means is working on the feel, working on can you have smooth contacts or silent contacts? Can you feel what part of your foot is interfacing with the ground? So working on that awareness. And can you work with uh, feeling how your body is using its innate springs to be launched through the air? And these are things that just come with the territory for uh, like the animal kingdom, kangaroos or spring box. You watch them jumping around and they're obviously not thinking about anything. And the goal is really not to. You shouldn't have to think about any of these things. But as humans can be overthinkers, I do find that when it comes to plyometric activity, if we can at least take some time, and those early phases are certainly a good one for it, to just let ourselves feel the innate bounce in each step as we go through these basic activities. And the low-level hops are also great ones for this. Uh, the more we can do that and take time to just notice our elastic nature, it can really help pay dividends once the work does start getting more intensive, the bounds or depth jumps or whatever it turns into, the better relationship we can have of our own body's elasticity, the better results. And the better really, it, I just find the better relationship we have with training movements that we can get later on uh, as we go through that process. And part of this, I say as a 40-year-old now who has probably done, I don't even know how many hurdle hops, bounds, and depth jumps. It's been a lot. <laughs> and in that time, I've just found that using them to really work on that relationship to feel my body elastically operating and not just trying to hit a position, but just feeling the machinery at work has been something that's been really helpful as well. So that would be some uh, ideas for you uh, once you get rolling back in plyometric training again. The second question here is from Tomas uh, Capucho. And he asks, what's your approach in terms of strength and conditioning for swimming means and methods for that population? And so these are our swimming questions are ones I really enjoy. I've been getting more of them lately. I've spent a good amount of time in swimming and it's not something I talk about necessarily a whole lot. I know a lot of the questions tend to revolve around speed or jumping or land-based power. And so with swimming, there are a lot of principles from land-based speed and power that still hold true uh, when I work with athletes who are aquatic in nature. But the main things I'm looking for that are different with swimming is the exercise medium. And I also use a lot of the same exercises, but one of the absolute biggest things I'm looking for with swimming is, and you can get away with this, like, like basketball, for example, you could do barbell bench press a lot because you're not, those athletes aren't using cyclic shoulder actions over and over and over again. So they don't have to worry about that as much, but for sports where you do have a lot of cyclic shoulder action or repetitive shoulder action, you have to be more mindful of the variety and the options present in upper body movements. So Basically, what that means is just a lot more alternating upper body dumbbell, kettlebell, uh, even different sensory like TRX or valve slide type work. So that's definitely one. But that's true for uh, not just swim, but any upper extremity sport out there where swimming, I think, has its own nuance that goes a little bit uh, further. 
is I noticed in good swimmers, so swimmers who even weren't necessarily as strong in the weight room, but once they got on top of the water, they could just straight roll. And we've had some of these uh, discussions with the biomechanics, uh, different biomechanics folk who've been on this podcast, is those swimmers have the ability to retract the thorax. And so what Alex Effer, or how Alex Effer has put it that I think is really good is the term, are you either being, um, if, if I'm standing straight up, and Alex is standing in front of me, and he pushes my uh, his hand into my chest from the front. That's being pushed backwards, and that's a mechanism that a lot of swimmers can do really well. And it's a little bit of an orientation that they can get into very well because that helps with their buoyancy and their options of their shoulders in the water. Uh, being pushed forward would be if someone or Alex, in the uh, sense of his example, stood behind me, put his hand between my shoulder blades, and then pushed me forward from the back. And that's that type of posture that is actually a little bit more like a sprint posture because you do need to push your center of mass forward a little bit. For example, if you've seen pictures of Usain Bolt where his, he almost looks like he has a dent in his back. So someone who's a pure sprinter is going to have that uh, more of that type of presentation. But uh, so with that in mind, the things in the gym that tend to push you forward are more like the standard powerlifting movement. So think like a straight bar deadlift or a, bar- a barbell back squat. Just by the nature of that bar placement, it's going to, especially over time, the better you get at those lifts, start to press you more into those positions, which uh, for athletes who do want a little helpful compression for speed, linear speed, and things like that actually can be something that initially can not be a bad thing. Uh, But for swimming, what I found is you generally want to stay away from those things that are more compressive, especially over time. Swimmers are very hard workers as well. They really uh, especially the sprint swimmers, as I found, they really like to make gains in the weight room. And so uh, oftentimes I would have to hold swimmers back. As, uh, the swimmers I worked with, at least in my environment at UC Berkeley, because they wanted to be successful and swimming is a tough sport. And so if you give swimmers uh, like a line of an exercise, they're going to really take it to a high level. So you really want to be mindful with giving them a very compressive pushed forward exercise when it doesn't fit with that position they really want to be in on top of the water. And so to that end, I would just be much more mindful of selecting things like a zercher squat where the bar is in front of the body and by nature that exercise will help you to push back a little bit as you go through a squat. Or if you're doing a bench press, you could put the feet up or elevate the feet or place the feet on a wall so that as you're doing a press or alternating press, It's something that is actually pressing the center of mass backwards. So just being mindful of those things, that was a big one. A lot of it too was a lot of variability and creativity in medicine balls and calisthenics. And if there was bars or monkey bars and things like that, I found swimmers uh, and a lot of athletes really enjoy that type of thing. And I'll use that in multiple sports, but swimmers really enjoyed that type of work. The medicine ball in particular is also a great like pre-water time activation. So doing all sorts of different medicine ball throws. And those are some basics of things that I found working in aquatics. Certainly there was a lot more, but uh, that goes, it all would go beyond the scope of a single question within this podcast. I am writing a book on it and I'm looking forward to getting that book out there. Uh, The next question comes from Ty Lopez and he asks, This actually goes along with swimming here. Uh, Besides endurance, are there elements of swimming that translate to running mechanics? And this is an interesting question because, well, for one, I'll just say, and for the sake of a lot of uh, folks listening to this podcast, especially like speed and power and on land-based training, 
Uh, pool training, just cross pool recovery. Randy Huntington talked a lot about how much he valued the pool for track sprinters. I think for all athletes, uh, not just track, but football, basketball, whatever your sport is, getting in the water is naturally restorative. Uh, Marv Marinovich used it a lot. Some of the Marv Marinovich water training videos, in my mind, are just classics. Um, but in terms of actual swimming, <laughs> so actually using swimming for other sports instead of just uh, like aqua jogging or uh, some of the Marinovich type stuff, which usually involve like rapid oscillations of limbs in the water in various ways. And there was even gear that you would put on like the wrists or the ankles that would facilitate the resistance. Um, actually swimming. But it's interesting to think of swimmers builds. So a common swimmer build would be a little bit different than like, like let's say a track sprinter, the name, uh, namely a lack of glute development in a lot of sprinters. And what's interesting is I actually tested um, men's sprinters in 10 meter sprinting just to see one. I was just genuinely curious to kind of see how fast uh, sprint swimmers are. It's the same or very similar en energy systems, at least in the competition. Training is a little bit different as swimmers do tend to get more aerobic. But I was curious and I found that there was actually a lot of really, really fast swimmers that you might just think, oh, well, swimmers aren't, they aren't very good on land or whatever, but there was guys running pretty respectable 10-yard uh, dashes that I found. And actually, breaststrokers of all the swimmers were the best at the 10-yard. But what's interesting is the breaststroke is one that has like a diagonal leg action where the knees will go out to the side uh, a bit. And in the other strokes, the legs are pretty straight, like they're in a straight line and they kick straight front to back. And that's interesting because, and, and this is something I talk about in like my courses and a lot of my posts that I'll make is that movement has a rotational quality to it. And in a swim kick, which is very front to back, and it also is very, you could just say knee extension oriented, you could say early knee extension oriented. Um, that's where I think that the leg development of a swimmer becomes a lot different than a track athlete. But I found that despite that, you had a lot of athletes who could still move well. Um, but I would say that there's very little outside of just working the gait cycle and freestyle that translates to running in any way whatsoever. And if you got really good at swimming, I would say probably, uh, not probably, it definitely is going to negatively impact your running gait at some point. A lot of that's like the structural piece in the foot as well. Like a, a swimmer's foot is very flippery. It has to be loose in the water. And that loose foot does not do very well generating the needed stiffness on land. So that instantly will change the stride. And then also you have that delayed knee extension working the glute. That's kind of the opposite of a swim kick in so many ways. So, you know, again, you also can be a little overly judgmental, such as is the modern marketing culture. Never do this exercise because it will ruin X or or why or whatever. So I, I wouldn't say uh, I've done uh, actual swim swimming on my recovery days, not just aqua jogging, but just going out and swimming some basic yardage and learning the strokes. And in a small amount, that was nothing but good for me. I never noticed any negative crossover or carryover. I'm sure you have to do some serious yards for it to start to dip in and become an issue. So next question is Cade Garcia, and he asks the top five best training modalities on recovery days. So peripheral mobility. Uh, what kind of CNS stimulus, etc. So for me, I have uh, community and nature as two of my just massively helpful training mo uh, modalities, recovery day type activities. I'll give you an example of those two in action. A really good, um, you could say it's an off day, it's an easy day, is if I can get community and nature going together, 
such as uh, my coach in college, track and field, did these things called scramble circuits, where we would all together run throughout the track and uh, just around the campus in the woods or uh, through the hills or all these different locations. And we would stop every 100 meters or so and do, all right, we're going to do push-ups. And then the coach would ask one person on the team, how many push-ups are we going to do? We do them and then we go jog to the next place. And so we got those two things in tandem. You got a little aerobic system development. There's a lot of variety of work. And so when it comes to recovery, that's I think that those are things that we don't talk about enough. Uh, another thing that goes with nature, in my opinion, is getting your bare feet on the ground, getting your bare feet in water, in running water particularly. I should say it does depend on what kind of water. Uh, so water obviously, water that's running versus like a little muddy pool our dirty pool, totally different stories. Uh, salt water, the ocean, those are things that are absolutely incredible for feeling better. And obviously, if you can do that in a community, like a community hike in nature to a running cool water, a cool stream, awesome. Um, and for me, I, I just think that those things, compared to maybe the more typical, hey, let's do, you're going to do this contrast uh, therapy session. And contrast therapy is awesome, by the way. But I just think those natural community-based factors are not uh, talked about enough. Outside of that, uh, anything that's like light play, like I really like sports like racquetball, you could even say like pickleball. Again, there's that community theme of, of um, just playing with another person and not just, I think that's important for me. Sometimes I will get in my own zone in training very easily and uh, you live in your own world. All right, I'm going to do this stretching routine and and those that's certainly helpful, but I just find that the community aspect can be really a powerful multiplier of recovery. I'm sure there's research on laughing and laughter for longevity's sake, and I think it also really helps us to recover between sessions. i also say, too, in terms of uh, modalities for recovery, you also have things that are more active in training that I'll use, such as isometric holds with breathing and breath work, so nose breathing, like an iso lunge with a four-second in, eight-second out cadence, or doing mace bell swings with uh, exhales. As the mace goes in front of you, inhales as it goes behind you as your rib cage is opening up. That kind of goes with like breathing squats. If you're squatting down and you exhale on the way down, this being body weight, and then inhale on the way up just to work that um, the breath cycle to the movement, things that are a little bit kind of qigong in nature. Uh, also, things that are percussive, like just gently tapping, uh, like gentle fists, just tapping different places on your body that might be sore. You could say it's moving energy around. All these things I find helpful for the sake of improved energy, recovery, and there's a big list. And hopefully that goes a little bit beyond the, I think, the typical, which I think the typical is good, but I wanted to add a little bit of the atypical in there as well. Okay, next question here is Toolbox Jim uh, TLV, and he asks, training wisdom for vertical jump training over the age of 40. I've been getting a few of these questions. It's almost like, it's kind of funny. You think age is just a number and then you turn 40 and then there's all these questions about being 40 and trading. But it's like, what about all, where's all the 39 year old questions? <laughs> just kidding. I do appreciate it. And it is, it is an important topic because I do think that as we get older, I believe our training can become more rich as we learn more about uh, not only our own training response, but also how to make uh, those key components to making uh, training joyful and sustainable in the sense of enjoy, genuinely enjoying what you learn out of the training session on a regular basis, what you learn about being able to compete in different ways, uh, learn different sports and movements, and just keeping that going. Um, that, that's been an important uh, aspect for me. Uh, I find that, so I'll, I'll start with this. 
is that uh, vertical jump training as the question here. But I find that exploring, continuing to explore the jump in different ways has been helpful for me. If all it is, is here is my max touch and I can touch 10, eight, and you just go and you maybe have a vertex or a rim or whatever, and you uh, go to see at what you can do every time that fundamentally starts to get, I just think it's a little exhausting on one uh, end of things. And it's also not something that you are going to walk into being like, oh, I can't wait to test my jump. Like every day, oh, I can't wait to test my jump. Maybe if it's a good day or something like that. But what I find is that the core or the base uh, should always be, especially as you move forward, fun, skill, things with options, things that on the day you can feel like you made progress. And so to that end, that's things like low rim dunking and trying different skills and versions of the jump. Even for me with high jumping, I enjoy learning I was just going through like an old, uh, it was the Derek Boosie jumps book from I think 1980 and it had some drills for straddle high jump. And I was like, oh, I'm going to go try all these drills out just because it's a different way you can interface with jumping. And so for me, that's something that I have found very useful. It It's just, it, it's a lot more fun than, all right, I'm going to go to the gym and see what I got today. And again, that that's good. But I find that when you enjoy that learning process where all things are almost new again, or they are new again, I'm learning how to straddle high jump and all these drills. This is the first time I've done this drill set. The actual jump height will take care of itself. And that's so often what it was like for us uh, growing up. A lot of times, the first time you were exposed to plyometric training or depth jump exercises, or even a basic squat or strength routine, it's so much fun because you're getting stronger and then you're going and you're seeing your jump go up as well. But then obviously at some point it levels off. And then the question is, well, then what do you do? And as I see it, I would rather at that point go the skill route, making sure and and in that skill route, things become new and fun and engaging again versus almost like you're always like uh, having a hammer and pounding up at the roof, hoping to like pound through the plateau versus having a, a joyful, skillful experience that every day is fun and its own challenge. And that can definitely help with that sustainable practice over time. Now, a lot of that is for individual type work. So for example, if I'm looking to dunk a basketball or high jump or long jump or anything like that. And at the same time too, there's that community-based aspect. So I was playing volleyball, for example, a little bit of league volleyball about I would say about eight months ago, and it was a great experience. And I wish I was able to do more of that. Sometimes life just doesn't work out that way. But I found that in those team-based sports situations or just doing different sports, you're getting a lot of that variability, a lot of those different jumps, and it's built in in context of just having fun, playing the game. And the older I get, the more I really value gameplay, community, task-based jumping, and then along with what I said, learning jumping in that new way over time. I just think that not um, just you don't want to get too far in your training ever from the meaning and the fun and the joy that was the reason that we always started this whole thing. So I've doubled down on that certainly in different ways and creative ways as I have gotten older. Along with that, Joe Ferrigno asks, uh, how has your training changed since turning 40? More recovery, less volume. So maybe this is a question that I'll take uh, alongside. So alongside as I've transitioned into more just interesting ways to explore the skills that I choose to train, it also has been one where I find that I can't get away with some of the high-frequency training uh, temperaments, templates that I utilize in my mid-20s. 
So a lot of what I started to really get into with jump training was a lot of templates based off of like Yuri Verkashansky's work. And I altered those over time. And a lot of it was doing four in many weeks, four high intensity sessions a week. So either speed, plyometrics or lifting. And I just found that I, and this was about age 35, and maybe this was just a combination of many things. I had two children at the point, two young children, and I found that that template was no longer sustainable at that point. Uh, I think, again, there's a lot of things that added up to that. And I did find that doing some um, breathing mode, like breath work on my off days, actually, that was one I missed for the recovery question. Doing breathing work was really helpful for me. That helped me to be able to tolerate that type of template. But these days I have adjusted it. So instead of, let's say a speed day uh, twice a week where I'm doing some pretty good linear sprinting and plyometrics alongside two strength-based days, those speed days a lot of times look a little bit more, um, there's more actually, believe it or not, an aerobic component, a circuit-based component to a lot of it. It's a lot more multi or supersetted and a little bit longer, uh, longer efforts, a little bit more fitness-oriented in many cases, simply because my nervous system uh, isn't going to do amazingly well with, hey, I'm going to go out and run a certain amount of max, like 10 or 20 meter flies. And part of it, though, is also I enjoy, I need a certain amount of fitness-based work in my program to maintain good um, recovery ability, body composition, overall general strength, trying to maintain a lot of abilities as I am, uh, I try to maintain that spirit of a generalist. And so some of those speed days actually become a little bit more distributed, and I find that in that distribution, I can recover from them quite well, and I may distribute my speed days differently than if I was 25 or working with a 20-year-old athlete, for example. So that's really one of the main ways. And then within a lot more work, like more sustained work as well, I, I find it's a little bit easier to kind of stay in a flow state, especially training when I don't have a training partner. And being able to keep moving, uh, I do like trying to avoid prolonged dead periods in my own training simply because I don't, I, I like to stay engaged. I like to keep my mind on track and not lose focus. Uh, my goal is to stay off of my phone. If you have five minutes between a lift or sprint, a lot of times people will, you know, hey, what's going on on my phone? And so I'm always trying to find a continuous flow-based training that keeps me in the moment as much as possible. So that's been something that's gone along with in uh, changing my frequency. And in, in reality, I would say it's gone from being able to sustain four high intensity days to really two in any given week, I'm going to be able to get one, maybe two really good high quality days. And then the other two days that would have been higher intensity are a little bit less. Even when I was doing that though, back in the day, like age 25, I mean, I was I was going so hard on those four days a week that I had to deload every third week. <laughs> and I also think that just sucks up energy pretty quick. If you just think of general uh, adaptability energy, you could even say life force energy and the ability to adapt to training, that going hard, uh, like adapt or die mentality, and then really needing that deload so badly uh, can produce really good results. But I also feel like it's hard to really sustain that for a long period of time. Like, oh, yeah, I'm going to sustain this for. 20 more years, it's going to be really difficult. So I found way, I've just found uh, tweaks to make uh, or major adjustments with that template to help me enjoy training, be a generalist, uh, maintain a fairly high level of fitness, and also learn more about a lot of movements and the way I've modulated it 
um, over time. I'll also say I, I try to have fun with the environment in front of me. I always uh, look at like a different training environment. If it's training in my yard that has like a little hill and there's like a low grade 120 meter hill on the, the street and the sidewalk, trying to find workouts that incorporate some of those different hills and angles, even like downhill bounding type things, different ways to use the Lila exogen weights. I have a tree, so sometimes I'll even incorporate like abdominal work in between sprinting because I find it doesn't actually, unless you go for absolute burnout, it really doesn't detract from the sprint itself. And it can actually give you an interesting sensory experience from a trunk perspective, but also in rock climbing, which is a winter activity for me, I find that uh, making up workouts uh, within the scope of rock climbing that incorporate different qualities has also been fun and enjoyable. And again, with just learning new ways to do things. So for example, I was bouldering the other day and basically my fingers had gotten to the point where they were, my finger grip was cashed out. And you could even look at that like, all right, you're doing a sprint workout and your primary sprint pathway is just cashed out. Your nervous system doesn't want to do or to go faster in this specific, let's like a 10 fly or a 30 meter dash iteration. Well, then you drop down into the next layer of things you could do. Maybe it's a plyometric that you can give a good effort towards or a medicine ball series that you can give a good, a good effort towards. So in climbing, once my fingers are cashed out on the tough climbs, I actually move to lower level climbs. So moving from like, um, moving down a couple climbing grades. And then I would go to the gym and do like various hanging abdominal exercises, pull vault boob exercises where you're inverted, trying to get your hips above the bar, those kind of things. So I would do that till, um, not failure, but till I was getting close to it. Then I would go back to the climbing boulder, a lower level problem, do that, then go back to the gym. And just working that creativity into whatever my environment is, I find to be a lot of fun. And so that keeps my mind engaged. And that mind engagement and using creativity uh, and autonomy is so important. And that also goes into coaching athletes and helping them to uh, use their autonomy and creativity and giving them a voice. Uh, I know Jamie Smith has talked about that as his high school athletes get older and they understand the training they eventually get to a point where he expects more autonomy from them. And just in my own, how much creativity on my own part uh, made my training come alive. I also feel like that's really valuable uh, for all athletes. Uh, next question, just Jumari asks, how do you improve an athlete who can't bring in speed to their one foot dunk? So the leg uh, will give out. So one foot jumping improvement, uh, if the leg's giving out, uh, on the just the pure force and physics side of things, uh, the explanation would be, well, there's not enough eccentric strength in the, you know, the knee joint or something like that. But I find there's, uh, there's a little bit more going on than that. And a lot of a single leg jump revolves around how an athlete can use their body structure, their skeletal structure to deflect themselves off of the ground well. And that's a trademark of a single, a good single leg jumper. Uh, many good single leg jumpers are uh, fairly fast twitch, but maybe not as much as a sprinter, like a very fast 100 meter dash athlete. And again, so much of that ability to deflect oneself off the ground is putting your body, your leg in the appropriate positions to be able to absorb the ground, uh, collide with the ground, and then uh, reuse that energy to get upwards. And Part of that um, is with the foot being planted in front of the hip on a relatively straight but not completely straight leg. So that's one thing that happens. Another thing is being able to have that plant leg a little bit externally rotated. So if you look at the athlete planting from the front, that kneecap going laterally out to the side a bit, that helps to 
absorb the ground without collapsing. So that mechanism. And some ways to help with that. One is to be able to do work that uh, uh, familiarizes an athlete with the knee behind the toe. Uh, Angus Bradley was on the podcast a while ago talking about um, knees behind the toes training. Knees over toes very popular these days. Um, Knees behind the toes almost ostracized. And Angus talked about, for example, doing things like a split squat with the knee behind the toe because it trains and helps an athlete to get into more of that mid-stance, um, early stance, if you will, type setup. And it's a similar loading parameter to that single leg jump. So a lot of athletes who struggle to jump well off one leg, a lot of times they just hit with way too much knee bend and they're not very good at putting that foot out in front of the hips to work that force production. Another thing that you can do is the hops, skips, gallops, uh, working on doing that and feeling the elasticity, feeling the bounce, and also just noticing different parts of the foot. You could have athletes do those series and notice more inside of the foot, more outside of the foot, what felt the bounciest. I'm not about trying to force athletes putting pressure off a certain part of the foot, uh, but I do think exploration there could be a helpful tool uh, if we really try to say, oh, you always have to push off this part or get to this part of the foot. That can put too much in an athlete's cup, so to speak, and not let them authentically and organically solve the problem. But exploring how their foot is applying pressure to the ground can be helpful in generating that more automatic upwards response. Um, You could also do gallops with more, uh, you could play around with the length of the stride in the gallop. For example, you could do gallops for distance, gallops for height. You could even do gallops uh, and skips, but gallops is a great one because it really replicates a lot of things happening in a single leg jump and do it uh, on a slight downhill because that extends the length of that takeoff or plant leg. It makes it actually reach just a touch more. There's going to be a lot of changes in the takeoff leg to fit with that. Uh, on top of that, doing work barefoot, so plyometric work barefoot, feeling the sensations in the feet, improving single leg RSI. That was talked about by Rich Burnett uh, with the plyomat. Uh, on a previous episode and how single leg RSI fits well with a lot of athletic skills. So certainly to jump well off one leg, you do need that reactivity, uh, but that's not the whole, uh, that's not the entire equation. I will say doing a lot of uh, like hop, skips, scallops, bounds, plyos will help your single leg RSI, certainly, uh, but you do want to pay attention to that. Uh, and then finally, um, looking just in terms of the foot itself, ankle complex, doing things like soleus-based work, bent knee calf raises, regular calf raises, those types of things, just generally improving the strength of the foot and ankle complex. Of course, there's much more that can be done within that, but that's a good starting point. Uh, These are all things that can help to really improve that single leg jumping and related elasticity. But again, just realize as well that some athletes structures, uh, a wide ISA may not be quite as good of a candidate for that single leg jump. Uh, There's certainly really good one leg jumping wide ISAs, but compared to that narrow ISA, there's also certain just structural things that predispose athletes for certain types more than another. So along the lines of the single leg jump as well, uh, high jumping. So I um, KVNG, <laughs> uh, we'll just say, uh, then Namadi asked top three tips to get better at high jump. So also related to single leg and elasticity. Uh, I don't want to get too far in the weeds on this one because it is more of a specific thing, but it kind of fits with just learning skills. Uh, I view all these things as just uh, learning skills, so variety of learning, differential learning, uh, constraints-based approach. Now, with the high jump, though, as opposed to just running and dunking, the main thing is learning to run a curve well, learning to run that curve, and as Dave Karen talked about, that Fibonacci where you actually the curve actually tightens at the end, 
And one of the things that a lot of high jump coaches do that can really harm that is ramp jumping or excess ramp jumping. I think a little bit of ramp jumping is fine just with getting the feel or especially athletes who can't jump high enough to work some of the actions uh, over the bar in a typical practice. But using ramps a lot can really harm the way that curve maintains all the way until the end. Uh, Running curves and taking off and doing pirouettes and 360s off one leg. That's a lot of fun for jumpers as well. So I enjoy using those types of things in practice. Um, be adept at a variety of one leg, one leg jumps. Uh, I've seen Stefan Holm, high jumper, and this goes for any skill in so many ways. Uh, again, not just high jump, but Stefan Holm could jump over a high jump bar. There's a video of him. Uh, this was posted by Simon Hunt, the six degrees of jumping. Holm jumped the bar six different ways, all of them with a pretty good degree of proficiency. I mean, he wasn't like, you know, a hundred percent expert at the straddle, but he was pretty good. Um, and jump pretty high with a lot of these different uh, older techniques. And I think that there's something to mastery that, or that speaks to mastery in whatever skill it is you're doing uh, to not just, and you can get to a good level, certainly just doing one thing. But as I see it, it's a lot more fun and it's a lot more robust and enjoyable to learn different variations of the skill, if nothing else, just for fun and and to distribute the volume, but also a lot of times those different types of jumps you learn can organically work together to help your main technique be just intuitively better, not needing a coach to tell you, all right, you need to be in this position or that position, but something that just comes uh, instinctively. Uh, And then with that, I do like working in a constraints-led approach, so just trying different types of jumps, and again, this could go for different skills, but like high jumping, working one arm, arm only, High jumping with low arm takeoffs. That's like the old school takeoffs, like the Dick Fosbury, the first, uh, the Fosbury flop. He used a very low arm jumping style that forces a lot more to happen uh, in that early impulse phase. Doing jumps with various skip-ins, doing distance jumps over the bar. There's a lot of uh, different constraints that you can utilize that can help you to naturally and organically find technique. And then finally, one of the fun things about high jump is just using a variety of calisthenics and gymnastics A lot of times in high jump coaching, coaches will only uh, look at what happens over the bar because that's the big and easy thing just to tell an athlete to throw their head back or something. But I find that athletes who are good at gymnastics and calisthenics, they have that broad base of ability. What they, when they jump over a bar, it's just very instinctive and easy for them. You don't have to coach them, nor really should you have to coach them uh, that in much detail, in that much detail when they're going over the bar there. So uh, that's with the the high jump again. Don't want to get too far into it, but those principles I mentioned can go for so many, if not any, skill um, that is out there. And as I speak, I'm working on building a constraints led approach library in various sports skills, just because I feel the more uh, skills you know and have examples of constraints in those skills, it helps you to piece together better uh, processes for whatever skill you're trying to improve. The next question is also a track question, but again, one that I think bears. Um, my answer is going to be applicable for any sport or athletic performance or sports performance. Uh, Coach Lou 88 asks, what's the one thing you would program to progress with a track athlete from the seventh grade to 12th grade? And the big thing I'll say is hurdles. Uh, Ryan Banta talked about this with his uh, critical mass program as he talked about wanting to build decathletes, having a base of skill in so many ways. And it's that base of skill that can help athletes to kind of like what I mentioned in, in just one skill with Stefan Holm doing all these different types of high jumps, the broader your skill base, you can really refine and, and just have an instinctive technique down the line 
versus so often in coaching now where it's um you could say it's a robotic form of coaching where everything is coached up and there's all these drills and do the drill this way versus athletes exploring and learning and finding options on their own and i do think that uh hurdling and the things that hurdling offer it's like a donor sport or donor ability to so many other events in track and field and beyond that i think that actually goes beyond track i love hurdle mobility hurdle walkovers um low-level hurdle drills even for team sport athletes uh team sport athletes certainly don't need to be hurdlers but I think there's some donor sport pieces to just learning basic, basic low-level hurdle drills. And honestly, even um, maybe not track hurdles necessarily, but if you have a 24-inch like plyo hurdle that'll just fall over, having athletes race over hurdles. It's an awesome uh, speed, uh, agility, uh, sprint development tool to if you, if you have a few hurdles in the gym and have athletes race over the hurdles who aren't track athletes, just have the football players, hey, race over the hurdles uh, to, through the timing gates, things like that. There's a lot of value in that. And it's a, it's not only robust in the sense of being able to incorporate running with skill, but I also think that the athletic explosive process of jumping over a hurdle, there is dynamic mobility in the swing leg that has to swing out to the side. You get a dynamic like adductor and lateral chain engagement. Jumping over a hurdle is also kind of like, and I talked about single leg jumping, but it, it, there's there's power jumping and single leg jumping where the swing leg scrapes kind of lower to the ground it doesn't always scrape the ground but it goes lower and there's speed jumping where the swing leg stays high and tight and hurdling in so many ways is it's essentially speed jumping so it gives you a, a speed jumper stimulus and i just think there's so much there i do really like the the decathlon principle you could say training uh and i think ryan banta mentioned it training track athletes like decathletes and we do see in track, like decathletes, there have been situations where athletes are decathletes or heptathletes, and they're really good at one event, and they actually stop the multis to uh, focus on that one event, and then they actually get a little bit progressively worse the more they get away from that base, that broad-ranging base of explosive skills, and they try to focus, and maybe, you know, who knows exactly what happens in various cases, but maybe they're overly drilled, and, and they aren't able to have instinctive athletic movement. I I look at it kind of like the relationship of basketball to high jumping as well. And this is, I think, a universal principle. But in, and I've talked about this on the podcast certainly before, but I notice, um, and I remember when I was coaching at Wilmington College, there was an athlete from Heidelberg who literally rolled off of the basketball court, indoor finished. And this guy went, and I think two or three weeks later, he won the national indoor meet in high jump. And then throughout outdoor season, pro, um, progressed to be, get worse all outdoor season. The more they focused on it and did typical, and most coaching is a little bit more, is not constraints-led. It's more like do this, run like this. And I don't know what the coaching was like in that situation, but I do know that it's very easy. The further you get away from multilateral instinctual athleticism, that's very relatively or very closely related to your sport. And basketball has so many donor sport uh, pieces to it that <clears throat> you, we can just lose that like instinctive fluid athletic ability. So uh, trying to make this question one that's applicable for many situations, but we'll just call it the decathlon principle uh, for track. It, it is becoming um, more adept at hurdling uh, in coaching high jump currently right now. So the event I'm coaching, we warm up with hurdles at least once a week, and we try to make sure that is an important part of what we do. So huge fan of hurdles and huge fan of hurdling and hurdle mobility for many athletic populations. The next question is from Chad McGill, and he asks, what are the top five isometrics to do pre-court session? So before practice uh, or game, what are the best 
things to do from that isometric perspective to prepare the body. I'll start this question off by saying that I think the game or even a practice should be inherently stimulating on its own because you are competing, you're doing game-like activity that involves high rates of force development, it's social, there's outcome goals, and it's task-oriented. So I always look at whatever you're actually doing in a game as being highly activating in and of itself. In fact, I will often use games as the activation, if you want to use that word, for um, lifting or power outputs or a linear sprint or a jump. And so with that frame of mind, I, I do think there's certainly occasions, especially once you get to the college and pro level and players have more mileage and specific needs and they're obviously getting paid to do this where a more extensive pregame activation and having a coach dedicated to that I think is helpful. But the way I look at it for just, just an average purpose is I want to almost think of disinhibiting the things holding me back in the body before I go to play. And that's a more of a mental thing in so many ways. Um, and with the scope of isometrics, what I can do is I can use that as a little bit of a pre-practice visualization. You could say it's a meditation. And in the sense that the, the extreme ISO battery that's been taken forth by Jay Schrader into and taken on by the athletic world, those movements in a way are their own visualization in that you're holding a position, so you're not going anywhere. So it's you and your body and your mind. And there's a breath pattern that's associated with those. So a common one is nose breathing only, and they're all nose breathing only, which is a more parasympathetic calm state type activity. And then you'll go for four seconds in, eight seconds out, or you could do box breathing, four, four, four. So four in, hold four, out four, um, then hold and repeat that. Uh, there's as long as it's um, a even number, so going four, eight, five, ten, six, twelve, four, four, uh, that is going to help sync up the mind and body to be a little bit more clear. And uh, companies like HeartMath, who uh, they have a little thing that clips on your ear and it tests how your basically how your brain and then the I think the electromagnetic field uh, of your heart how that connects. And they use like HRV score as well. I think the HRV with the heart regularities and things like that. But what they found is athletes who have a higher coherent score and the coherent score goes up when you breathe well, when you can breathe in sync on pattern, not um, in an aberrant, <laughs> I hope I'm saying that right, pattern. Those athletes can have a little bit quicker reactivity. They can be more in tune with the game. And so, so much of what I look at in tuning the body pre, uh, prior to a game is also tuning the mind, tuning the breath, and then disinhibiting the body. I, I have not done this one yet um, before a game, but I, I think it would be an interesting practice. Well, actually, you, if you watch the Maradona videos, he does it. He just does like the shaking, like he's like shaking his body really fast. And in so many ways doing that, it's, it's shaking off muscular inhibitions. You could say holding patterns. And in so many ways, the mind is the body. What is going on in the mind? So if you have a tight mind, for example, an anxious mind. A lot of times that can manifest in tighter muscles, athletes who don't have as much range of motion. And so in so many, in so many ways, by doing something in the body, you can have an impact on the mind as well. So I think it'd be really interesting to, uh, <laughs> if anyone wants to run this experiment, uh, doing, yes, the, the isometrics and the breathing. And, and with the five isos, you could pick any of the five that Jay has put out there. Um, or you could even just do a few, just do a couple. I like the lunge and push up, like a hang's a nice one. Um, there's plenty of options to pick from there. Uh, but then doing like, and Aaron Cantor talked about this when he was on the podcast, just shaking. 
And even within the shaking, you know, a lot of people like like the activation type work, be activated or RPR or certain points of activation. Uh, I like the idea that something I've just been doing personally throughout the last, um, well, let's see now, probably about six months or ever since I uh, did the Evolve Move Play Retreat in Asheville with Aaron is kind of organically, if you're doing a warm up and you're just doing like, even like percussion, like instead of the Theragun, <laughs> you're the Theragun, just take your your fist or your palm and just gently uh, percuss, tap uh, uh, your body, like your arms and legs and core and back and trunk and wherever. And as you go through that, you can, if you feel there's some of those activation points you want to hit or address, you can go through those at that point. That way it's a little bit more organic. So uh, some things to consider with that. And yeah, I'll just, I also, I just hope to also give you a frame of mind or frame of reference that might run a little bit different to uh, a lot of people talk about how can I activate my body before the game or practice, but I am very uh, up on activating the body and the mind and that connection to its fullest potential. I just think there's so much there. And that's always the thing that I, I tended to struggle with because I didn't have a problem getting my body to a high output, like for basketball, for example, in high school is always the mind that held me back. And I think that's the case with just about every player, to be honest, in the scope of team sport. So I uh, hope that helps you out with that question. And uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting topic and area for sure. I think we're going to see a lot more there in the coming years. The next question is D. Uh, J. Ketta, and he says, thoughts for an open palm versus closed for sprinting? Uh, so I actually just had an Instagram post on this. It was Noah Lyles uh, sprinting back in 2016 with an open palm technique. He was very fast uh, back in 2016, uh, but he's continued to, he wasn't just a guy who was a freak in high school. He's gotten faster and faster and has run the number three two hundred of all time now. He just actually ran an amazing sixty meter dash, I think six forty four this past week. And so now he uses more of a closed palm, not a fist, but just a palm that's that's you could say it's gently closed or appears to be more gently closed. And so it's interesting. Uh, John Garrish and I had this conversation the first time he was on the podcast talking about uh, different hand positions athletes might use in sprinting or if they're going over wickets and things like that. And generally speaking, what you're going to see is athletes who have more open finger positions. And this is something I learned from a Darian Barr a while ago. Like if you're sticking your pinky finger out in your hand, that corresponds with sticking the pinky toe up in the foot. The hand kind of, um, and I think of it like it, that humunculus man. The, if you've ever seen the, it's almost like the map of where all the sensory nerves are in the body. And like the hands are huge and like the lips are huge and the person and then like the legs are probably pretty small. Like there's, there's different areas in the body that are much more sensory wired. And since the hands are so loaded from a sensory perspective, it's, it's almost as if the body can use that dexterity of the hand to share that connection with the foot a little bit. If the foot doesn't have quite as much there going on, the hand can almost manipulate the foot into, if you're like sticking your fingers straight out, um, just being a little bit, that's like a stiffness, that's a resist um, type motion. You actually could even feel it. If you are uh, bringing your fingers in, if you do this right now, you feel like muscle and strength if you bring your hand into a fist. You feel it's almost like an internal torque, something that can torque towards the center of the body. It's a little bit more muscular. If you extend your fingers, splay your fingers and make them as straight and rigid as possible, it's like you're resisting. It'd be kind of like resisting someone who's trying to close your palm in a way. And that message goes to the foot. And so uh, athletes who sprint with that straighter 
uh, straighter finger method tend to be using that uh, strategy to resist the ground more to get a little bit more elastic bounce. And there's different strokes for different folks. There's no one right way to do it. What's interesting with Noah, though, is he moved from that straight fingered method of sprinting into more of that closed palm method. So he now uses the closed palm and he's obviously gotten faster. But it's, it's a multifactorial thing because that uh, straight finger method may have been the best technique for him back uh, in 2016 when he was in high school or just out of high school. He was not as muscular then. He's been lifting a lot more weights now. And being physically stronger and more muscular does fit more with that internal torque, like bringing the fist in, you feel the muscles activate. It kind of just fits with that piece of things. And I think that we tend to, the, the pendulum swings in sprinting and mechanics and <laughs> uh, vertical force, it's, it's, it's the ultimate thing in sprinting. And then that's everything you want to work on, but that's not the case. Both horizontal and vertical are important. And I think that people who um, tend to emphasize that quick vertical piece frame of sprinting tend to be those who may use that open palm. And then people who tend to be trying to direct more of those torques internally and into horizontal may be using more of the closed technique. And you can see that with even how the foot bounces off the ground. And so I would actually say for athletes, I would not tell them to do one or the other. Part of me does like uh, bias a little bit more towards the closed palm technique, but there's been a lot of really good sprinters who have used the open palm over time, like Johan Blake. Um, and then, well, you could say, well, what about longevity? Well, then you have Kim Collins, who ran, like, I think 999 at age 40, who has an open palm technique, so straighter finger technique. Kim Collins was, like, skinny. He was, I think, like 5'11", 150 or something like that. And so that's obviously purely elastic, so it makes sense that he would use that uh, more straight finger technique. You also see in youth track, club track, uh, younger athletes, they use more of the straight finger uh, technique while sprinting. And then it does change over time in so many individuals. But what I would say is I just like having athletes notice. So the best way to know <laughs> if you should change that technique or not, and, and usually it's a change from the straight finger to the closed, if that's because that's kind of the natural progression of things. Um, I will say, though, that some athletes who don't have those neurological connections, like I'll have athletes doing like line hops or something or slant board hops. And there's a lot of cave and give at the ankle. And I'll say, hey, why don't you just lift your pinky finger out like a Darian will say or something like that, or even just a straight hand. And they instantly notice a lot more stiffness in the foot or reactivity in the foot. And they're like, wow, that's interesting. <laughs> so there, are, there may be cases where they, the athletes may want to actually use that as a strategy for sprinting. But that's just where I'll allow athletes to explore different modes and mediums and see what feels good. But one of the ways I think that's the most interesting to see is straight leg bounding. So if you have athletes do straight leg bounding and or, or go from a jog into a straight leg bound and just notice what your hands do, a lot of times your hands will go from a relaxed position into that straight finger stiff position as soon as you hit that straight leg bound, which is interesting. And then go from that straight leg bound into a sprint and see what your hands do. For me personally, my hands go back into more of a closed position. But for some athletes, maybe they would prefer to keep them in the open position. I think it's a detail that I don't, um, I wouldn't necessarily worry about unless um, maybe it's something that comes with injury. Like an athlete's too rigid and they have that straight finger position and they just run tight or something like that. Then, sure, I, I think that it, really trying to steer and explore towards closed positions. But it's something I would 
tend to focus on a little bit more actually with um, a lot of the drills and the more isolated stuff just just to see what happens and then if athletes want to sprint one way or the other i think it's ultimately their choice so um i know it's kind of that's not very of a much of a concrete answer <laughs> but i think just being armed with that knowledge will help your coaching intuition and if you're an athlete honestly it's just interesting and it's kind of cool to see how the human body operates so um that's that's what i have with that one and uh, for you observing athletes, uh, it gives you a, a new tool to observe athletes with as well. The next question is Sison Training. He says, how much do you care about extension, the extension pattern you see in lifts? Uh, good enough or perfect? And so uh, this would be referring to like if I'm squatting or doing a deadlift. And we've all seen those athletes who really crank and arch their back to squat uh, or deadlift. And that could be called an impingement strategy as well, where you're uh, beyond using the muscles, you're also like cranking the skeletal frame onto itself a little bit to really work that hinge and, and just get every piece of your body to make the lift. However, you don't want to move with an impingement pattern athletically. And so for me, I tend to just bias towards using lifts and squat and deadlift variations that put the weight in front a little bit more. So I tend to move more towards like a hex bar deadlift instead of a straight bar. I still have straight bar from time to time, but hex bar a little bit more or with squats, a front squat or a zercher squat or a safety bar a little bit more than I'd back squat. And then by elevating the heels and squatting as well, you're not giving an athlete as much room to yeah, hit that impingement pattern. When you squat flat footed and the first motion is the hips back, then the body can think it's falling backwards and then it can respond by hyperextending the spine. But with all of these things, and this is just, this is such a trend is to say, well, don't do this, never do this, do this instead. Um, and in, in that, we can shortchange the robustness of the athletic body in motion. The athletic body is smart. We can oftentimes back squat a lot more than you, you, know, you might think you can based off what you hear or see uh, on, from particular coaches or what you see on social media. The athlete can always do, um, there, there's no lift that's like off the table. But for me, the red flag is just simply if it's that instant hips back and then the spine uh, cranking and outside of that i i'm not overly concerned about it but the way i tend to set up my program kind of steers away from that being able to happen anyways and so I, it's I, it's actually something that i i don't really run into too much uh, i will say though it is interesting to look at yeah the the body types of an elite sprinter that is so pushed forward in in light of those things or if you watch like Usain Bolt doing like cleans and stuff it's kind of funny it's like all extension <laughs> uh but that's his jam you know and, and it's funny he's not even lifting that much weight in, in the Usain Bolt doing cleans he's like doing like 135 it does make you wonder if he was doing like 225 or something what would it look like could that be an injury mechanism in loading because he's already so pushed forward I don't know um but that's that's what I'll go with on that I I try not to over emphasize it if i saw and if i saw the athlete who was hyperextended that would be a red flag uh, we would instantly probably put back squats and deadlifts or those things that provoke it off the table but to be honest those aren't very much in my program anyways but i also at the same time realize there are plenty of athletes who can do them just fine and i don't judge that all right next question is sam upshaw uh, how much are we really overloading specific positions in a joint angle specific squat so this is a really good one because with uh, the weight room, and th this is common because there's we could say, okay, should we half squat for athleticism? Should we quarter squat? 
should we do this, you know, the same angle that happens in whatever phase of run, sprinting or jumping or whatnot. And, and the, I think the, I think the angle, you know, the close enough, it's like 30 degree window. As long as you're in a 30 degree window, I'm sure that's an arbitrary number, like, but as long as you're within a 30 degree window of whatever angle you're hitting in that sport, that's going to transfer. I don't, I actually don't really, I used to do more of this, but I do a lot less like quarter squats and, and all those things than I used to. Not that I don't think they're, they're of value. Because uh, I do think there's certainly value there, especially in the um, context of like contrast training, French contrast training. I think that's actually where that stuff shines the most. Um, I would much prefer like if it's jump training and we're doing half squats or something or one third squats and we're trying to find an angle close to the jump. I find a lot more value if we're doing like a isometric max squat at a close angle and then going into like a depth jump and then going into a jump squat at a similar angle. And then doing a regular, like a fast jump or a fast plyo. Like I, I would rather do that than, all right, we're going to get in the weight room totally separate from practice and really hit this specific position. Um, when it comes to, I, how do I describe why I think that way? I, I've gotten to that just because I really value sensory sim, uh, similarity. I really value, hey, if we're going to jump, let's do a lot of things that feel like jumping that are close to jumping. And it's all in that container. But as soon as you get out of the container, and now it's a general strength practice that's away from whatever you're doing in sport, I definitely have gone a lot more just along that. It's kind of like one by 20 type type uh, mentality, a lot more general, a lot more full range for the most part, occasionally stopping a little short. Sometimes it's one and a half, which is like extra full range, that kind of thing. Um, and then with the squats or things like that, I might go two thirds at some point, but a lot of that, it's not still not specific in, in the general squat workout. It's more just, it's just faster out of the bottom because there's a big difference between squatting to a bench that's about 16 inches off the ground versus squatting to parallel in terms of just that pop off the bottom. And if you're a narrow ISA as well, you really want to watch that, like that slow turnover, that grind or slow down in the lift as it relates to that pressure system. So that's why that's there. But yeah, a lot of the the real specific angles for me and where I've gone, I, I will hit mostly just in the scope of contrast training. And if it's a more general session that's absent of the jump or dynamic work, I, I tend to cater more towards full range stuff. So I do know there's research or a research study. I think it was Rhea who had uh, noted that quarter and half squats transferred better to speed and I believe jumping than full range squats and you, you could look at well is there a slowdown like I mentioned in that full range versus the quarter and the half um, I think there's a lot uh, there there can be a lot taken out from that because even within quarter squats as well I've been part of and seen programs like track programs that lived on quarter squats for a very long period of time and I, I don't think or saw a big noticeable advantage there if any over deep squats and so just from my own anecdotal perspective i do think it's a little nuanced with that i do think there's a lot of ways to go about it and i do think as well if you're in like a track or a sport an output sport and there's a peaking phase i do think a few weeks of going halves and quarters up for the psychological as well just hey there's more weight on the bar you're not worried about how much you're lifting because everything's new and the weight's going up and stuff like that i think that's that can be helpful as well but i do think once you get into just the standalone joint ankle um uh, just for lifting. I think that, I don't know. I, I just think it's not as simple as quarter squat 
better type type mentality. I think that a bet just back to what I said, I would pair that before I would really look at this as a standalone. And if it's just a more general gym perspective, I will look for more of a full range because hey, we're training the muscles in the gym. So I'm gonna make the muscles work by giving them bad leverages to work and grow. And then when I want to be fast, I'm gonna do more of the specific stuff, the actual sprinting and elastic type mechanisms. The next question is from David D-E-S-Q, and he asks, how would you combine training for javelin and one foot jumping within a weekly setup? So this is a very specialized program, and it'll be fun just to talk about it just from the sake of, well, how do you build a program out like this? So here it goes. I'd go something like on Monday, I would do throwing and short sprinting. On Tuesday, I would do jumping. That's more variable in nature. So all sorts, if you think about like uh, low rim dunks or something like that, all sorts of different takeoffs, or if it's high jump, all sorts of different takeoffs, um, not focusing on the outcome height, but more on the skill and learning a variety of movements. Wednesday would be a variable, like a rest, a circuit-based day, active recovery, something like that. Thursday, throw again. Uh, this time throwing, uh, where Monday throwing would be linear. I forgot to mention that. I would do more output throwing on Monday. The throwing on Thursday would be more variable in nature. And then again, short sprinting. Uh, Friday jumping, and now jumping is output. So jumping, trying to go more of that funneling your focus into a single higher jump. Saturday, doing some sort of tempo rhythm type sprinting. Uh, very much so for the sake of the jump, the single leg jump that fits well with there. And then Sunday rest. So. That's something I would put together to get all those things in in the week. The thing, or an interesting thing, is that throwing uh, does kind of have a similar quality in the block leg to a single leg jump, but I don't think that it's so intensive. It's not as intensive as the single leg jumping, so I don't think it's something you're going to overtrain doing that. Okay, just a few more questions here. Uh, how to peak for the 100 meters as a muscular driven sprinter in a track sprint work? That's by sprint as fast as you can. So for that one, it's a few, there's multi, it's multifaceted. If you are a muscular sprinter, you're a wide ISA, you're a neural driven, you can lift heavy weights, then it is in your favor to keep some sort of heavy weight movement in the program through that peaking process, like a Ben Johnson, like squatting a lot of weight, 500 pounds a few days before the Olympic final. But at the same time, the volume really needs to come down through that peaking process. I found it working in swimming. It was interesting. Swimming doesn't have the like the, I guess you could say like the scholarly or the official, like here's the official training literature that like track and field has. A lot of it's more like, you could say it's hearsay. It's almost like urban legends. And one of the, or I wouldn't say urban legends, but it's kind of just mutually agreed upon ideas from coaches. And one of those ideas was that really like more muscular sprinters, like muscle needed more time to taper. <laughs> so more muscular sprinters and swimming had to start their tapering process earlier but that a lot of that being with the water so just lower volume lowering the volume sooner and most swimmers train you could say they overtrain they train a lot they train very train very high volume for a long time so that was something that was interesting uh, just a different lens on that equation but then you do want to keep that high intensity in there uh, especially if you like lifting if you get things neurologically out of lifting that's something you want to look at and then last question here is uh, from KVNG Namadi uh, he asked, does maintaining strength for a sprinter in season matter? Will they get slower if they don't? And this goes with the last question. I actually group these together here. And so if you're an elastic type sprinter, I'll just contrast this. So you have the more forceful, the muscular, the wide ISA type um, that's going to do well to keep those forceful movements in on some level and degree. 
versus an elastic type sprinter is the type that might drive drive the the strength coach nuts if they don't show up in the weight room or if the track coach said hey they don't need to lift weights the last month or month and a half or whatever of the season and they still did just fine <laughs> that's the type of athlete that can get away with that kind of thing their engine is elastic and so that's the thing that they're going to be really honing and refining um maintain and i would just say too like maintaining strength i think with those athletes it doesn't have to be um, like a mental push to maintain whatever your max was in lifting in the preseason. Just hitting one by 10, honestly, of a couple key lifts here and there, like once a week, can go a very long way, a lot longer than you would think, given all the explosive, elastic, and neural activity that's happening on the track. And that's just something that I talk about this a lot. And it's something that we shouldn't forget is that when we are explosive, maximally explosive, in a stimulating race or competitive environment that also gives us um, contractile or motor unit recruitment, it's neural juice. And then when you go in the weight room, you're going to lift more or your lifting level will at least be maintained really well because you're being explosive in other activities. And for those elastic athletes, especially, you just need a drop of a few different types uh, for that competitive period when you're doing those types of things. I think it was Andy Eggers who actually had said, and this could be multiple types, elastic or muscular, but that athletes' power clean maxes were going up in season once they started racing in track because that explosive nature of track and back to the com- competition that raises your level, uh, that fed into the gym, into the weight room. And so uh, just realize that that elastic athlete who's sprinting fast is getting that stimulation very specifically and really doesn't need a ton of weights in season to be able to maintain that work. So. That closes out the questions for today. Thank you for everyone who put questions in. I always enjoy these. And so thanks again. Have a great week and I will see you on the next podcast.